before we get started, at present, Web3 Galaxy Brain has 12 reviews on Spotify and 7 reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you love this episode, please give Web3 Galaxy Brain a review wherever you listen. Welcome to Web3 Galaxy Brain. My name is Nicholas. Each week, I sit down with some of the brightest people building Web3 to talk about what they're working on right now. My guest today is Conrad Kopp, co-founder of Rhinestone. Rhinestone is an exciting project that's researching and developing smart account modules atop the ERC-4337 account abstraction standard. AA modules promise to allow smart contract account owners to safely add new functionality and permissions to their accounts without having to upgrade to new smart contracts. The module pattern described in the draft ERC-6900 Modular Smart Contract Accounts and Plugins aims to create an ecosystem of interoperable modules to augment the various 4337 implementations that choose to support it. On this episode, Conrad and I discuss the different approaches to account abstraction contract architecture, including SAFE and the ERC-2535 Diamond Standard. We dive into the details of ERC-6900 and discuss the compelling Rhinestone video demo, which shows how a user might activate and disable smart account modules like pass key validation, dollar cost averaging, and recurring payments. We also cover the grant that Rhinestone recently received from the Ethereum Foundation's 4337 team to develop a module registry, a public goods venue where security audit firms and others can attest to the safety of specific modules. Rhinestone is one of the most exciting projects working on AA right now, and it was a pleasure talking to Conrad about the smart account modules landscape. I hope you enjoy the show. As always, this show is provided as entertainment and does not constitute legal, financial, or tax advice, or any form of endorsement or suggestion. Crypto has risks, and you alone are responsible for doing your research and making your own decisions. Hey, Conrad, welcome. Hey, hey, how's it going? Good. It's great to get you on the show. Thanks for coming to talk about Rhinestone. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I'm super excited. Rhinestone is like one of the projects in the space uh, working on modular smart contract wallets that everyone is excited about. Everyone I talk to is like, oh, great, <laughs> Rhinestone. I'm excited to hear that. So this is going to be a great conversation. R Rhinestone started as a hackathon project at ETH Denver, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I went to ETH Denver, obviously, at the start of this year. Um, and yeah, built essentially the first modular smart contract wallets or smart account based on diamond proxies. So w is it the same team that was working at that, on the hackathon project that's working on it today? No, it's not. Um, so I was actually previously, um, before going to Denver, I was working with my co-founder, um, who's still my co-founder, Kurt, and went to Denver with a couple of friends um, who I lived with. Um, but everyone else on the team kind of had their own startup already. Kind of, I was the most bullish on and, and kind of drove the idea forward. So I continued working on it. Yeah, that, um, reminds, obviously, that reminds me, your, oh, na sorry. your name on Twitter is Abstractor. I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's kind of the Web3 vibe, like optimizers. <laughs> when, when did you pick that up uh, after starting the project? Yeah, yeah, it was during Denver, actually. It became a big meme in the, within the team. That's great. Uh, you were going to say something else about the, the hackathon project? Oh, no, I was just going to say, obviously, offered offered my friends to, to stay part of, part of Rhinestone, but um, yeah, most of them had already raised funding for another project, so couldn't easily switch over. Got it. And are, are, where are you and Kurt based? Do you do you work together physically or remotely? Yeah, so I'm based in Oxford in the UK, and he's based in London. Um, so it's like an hour train journey, and, and we try to work together once or twice a week in person. So that's quite nice that, that I can just kind of like travel over. Not too far. But apart from that, yeah, apart from that, we're just remote. So... For people who don't know Rhinestone, uh, what, what is it? What is Rhinestone? Yeah, 
so Rhinestone, I would say that Rhinestone overall, kind of like what we are trying to do is to make the wallet. Um, and by wallet here, um, I kind of mean the, the interface that a user interacts with. So to make the wallet um, a platform for innovation within Web3. Um, and obviously that's quite broad, so I can kind of go into specifically what we're doing. But I think that's the goal that, that we have. Yeah, I was thinking maybe a good way to get into it is for people who haven't seen the Rhinestone video demo on rhinestone.wtf, maybe you could walk me through the UX of creating a wallet and adding a plugin. And then later on, we can get into some of the technical details, what's going on in the background. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I guess like one caveat there is that actually the wallets, we see it as more of a reference implementation. We don't actually... Um, this is actually not kind of like the main product that we're building. We're actually more focused on the infrastructure to allow kind of everyone um, to, to do a similar thing. Um, but yeah, I think that makes sense to, to, to chat about this first. Okay, so we'll keep that in mind that you're, you're really building the underlying tech, but, but the demo is a kind of good example experience. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's actually what we built at ETH Denver as well. So kind of the idea there was, what if you kind of flipped kind of the, the, I guess, the paradigm for how wallets work today, a bit on its head. And what if you allow the user to completely customize how the wallet works, both on the front end, but also kind of as a smart contract. And obviously, this, this only works for smart contract wallets or, or smart accounts. This doesn't work for UAs. But kind of in the demo, like, we were say, uh, like you were saying, um, a user comes to the platform and they can select essentially the features that they want. And they can kind of, in this demo specifically, just drag them over to essentially the right side and then they can create the wallets with those features that they have, that they've selected. And I can kind of go into specifically what those features can be, but, but I think that's the, the core principle. And, uh, well, I guess the, the second aspect of it is that throughout kind of like the lifetime of that wallet, a user can change what those features are. So it's not that they pick them at the start and then they kind of forever have those features, but they can later add and remove features whenever they want, kind of on the fly. Very cool. So basically a modular smart contract wallet and a kind of reference uh, UI implementation, at least from the hackathon, uh, to, to sort of ex see, see the experience. One question that comes to mind even before we jump into the plugins is, at least on the version in the demo, I think you're using Touch ID, maybe passkeys. How are you generating the, the sort of signer, the initial access to the wallet in the first place? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So in the demo specifically, we are opinionated in the sense that we have the user on board with the pass keys, like you were saying. So we're using, um, yeah, like the, the secure enclave and, and the web end standards to essentially create a, a key that is stored, like I said, in the secure enclave of the device and authenticated or the key, like the, the kind of permission to use that key can be authenticated using the biometrics stored in that device, um, which obviously like we're not the only people to do. I think you've had like multiple people on the, on the podcast who are either working on the, the ERP or just kind of like thinking around passkeys and what about them. But yeah, we went, we went through the flow there and implemented that. So essentially that's like, uh, from a sort of contract perspective for you, that opinionated choice on the front end is just one of many potential choices for how you could sign on the smart contract wallet. Uh, but it's just like a convenient onboarding for this, this demo. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then a user could say, actually, I don't like passkeys because, you know, maybe I'm skeptical about the NSA. Maybe I want even more kind of protection and I can enable a different kind of validator or I can even have multiple validators. So in, in, in any kind of opinionated uh, front end that would live on top of the Rhinestone technology stack, uh, basically the first action would be even just creating a wallet is already like applying a plugin to a, a wallet, right? That's right. Yeah, you, you would always need, at the very least, you would need to have at least one validator. 
because otherwise you can't use the, the, the smart contract accounts. And then we strongly encourage you to also have at least one recovery option um, so that you can like recover that validator if you, if you lose the key. A validator is like an authentication mechanism? Right, exactly. Yeah, maybe it makes sense at this point to kind of talk through as we see kind of like the, the different types of modules. So, so, so one of them are these validators. And, and validators essentially, they... So in, in ERC 437, there's the kind of like the validation flow and the execution flow. So during the validation flow, the entry point calls the account and the account essentially does some computation and then returns to the entry point whether this is a valid user operation, which is like a 437 transaction. Um, so validator modules are modules that are called during this flow. And then, for example, if you use like a, a passkey, then you send that to the entry point, which sends it to the account, which then sends it to the passkey validation module. And there's a couple of other different uh, kind of types of modules that I can go into if, if that makes sense now, or, or we can talk about it later. Yeah, for sure. Just before we, we jump from validators. So, uh, for example, in this case of using a passkey, which, yeah, if people want to learn more about passkeys, there's a bunch of other episodes of the show they can go listen to. When they authenticate with a passkey, the validator plugin that's applied to the Rhinestone wallet is the like an R1 verification uh, module, basically? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you could use, so kind of if you are a dev that, that wants to build a validator module for passkeys, you could either obviously build your own or you could use kind of some of the existing logic or contracts that are out there that have been built by Economy or Ledger's FCL uh, kind of implementation or, or whatnot. Great. So, okay, yeah, let's let's dive into some of the other kinds of modules that there are. So there's validators. What else? Cool. Uh, yeah, so there's another type of modules which we call executors. Um, and actually one caveat here, or in general, is that um, there's a couple of teams like working in the modular account abstraction space, and we've been trying to kind of align people to use the same terminology. But actually it's still the case that most of the people still use different terms. <laughs> but we, we call these uh, executors, and, and they basically have two different functions. So they can modify your normal execution flow of the account. Um, so you could kind of like do, do X, then do Y, that kind of thing. Or they can also introduce automation into your smart account. So they could be triggered by, by a relayer, for example, as opposed to, be, to being triggered by the, by the user and, for example, perform actions on a scheduled basis. So that's executors. And, and then the, the, the third kind of module you, type. Before you jump to the third one, so yeah. those two types that you gave examples of, the first might be something like bundling both an approval and a swap into a single like one-time transaction, and the, and the latter would be like a, the dollar cost averaging uh, plugin that people can see in the, in the demo on the site. Yeah, for example, you could also have kind of the batching natively in the, in the accounts. Um, so maybe another example for, for the first type could be that you have a very specific kind of like flow of operations that needs to be executed in a certain kind of like order. And for some reason, like these might have to be executed from the smart contract that you can't very easily kind of format this into call data. And then you could have an executor module that does this like very specific kind of type of logic. And you just call this module as opposed to kind of like passing the entire kind of function flow in the call data. So would that be sort of for people who may be familiar with safe, like the construction, the uh, um, transaction builder experience there, where you can have like multiple transactions that are going to be executed sequentially, this would be something equivalent to that. Yeah, and especially kind of more advanced options of that, um, where there's, for example, interdependence between the different things that you execute. So, for example, uh, the first thing that you execute returns some data that is that fed into the second thing that you execute. For example. Mm, very cool. I mean, I know one of the big advantages of AA is that unlike something like multi-call, you get to preserve the message sender context so you can 
execute multiple transactions mm -hmm. in a row without um, having some of the, the downsides of the pre-4337 uh, user experience. So I guess this is kind of uh, taking that even further by allowing you to pass data from the first transaction to the second or, or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. And also, you don't need to know that data in advance. It can be kind of the output of some uh, transaction where you may not be able to predict exactly what the output will be in advance of sending the transaction. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. That's very cool, especially in a context where you're in like a mempool and maybe you're, I don't know, minting. You don't know what your token ID is going to be once the mint gets through and is on chain, but you know that there will be some token ID. So you can use that as the basis for something subsequent. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the, those are executors. Was there a third type? Yeah, so the so third type um, is what we call hooks. And um, Safe used to call them guards, I believe. Um, but now they also call them hooks. And basically, hooks are kind of functions that can run pre- and post-execution, and they can enforce certain things. Um, so one really cool thing that we've been exploring internally is a virtual cold storage hook that essentially checks... Um, well, first of all, you configure it, then you say, for example, like, I want this NFT to never be able to leave my wallet. And then before and after kind of like every execution or uh, like every, every, every um, kind of like transaction from that account, it actually checks that, um, for example, like the token balance of that specific token or just like that you're still the owner of the NFT if, if, if we're talking about um, non-punchable tokens, is still the same. And, and if that's violated, then it reverts the transaction. Mm, that's very cool. So almost like a flash loan kind of experience, but over your own assets where you can sort of guarantee that at the end of any transaction, some state stays uh, remains invariant. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's one example. And, and you can do kind of other, other really cool things as well. So for example, you might say, and I don't know, maybe, maybe this is not that realistic, but you can say, for example, every time I inter interact with Uniswap, I will also take a bit of kind of like whatever the output is of that Uniswap transaction and put it into a savings vault. Mm. Very cool. I feel yeah. like a lot of what yeah. shines through in your designs, although it's extremely technical and, and we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty of that in a second, it, it feels like a lot of your motivation is these kind of very regular uh, user experience benefits, like having a sort of easy to use savings account. It feels like a kind of late stage banking product uh, that's really for regular <laughs> people, but it's actually something that's like top of mind for you in terms of designing this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I would I would probably say that we're very product driven and um, like large parts of that are, are due to Kurt, who, who has a background in, in, in product. Um, you'll probably say that I'm also more of a product minded engineer than most. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, we have a pretty big like product focus and, and kind of like a focus on actually tackling problems that exist currently for people that like use wallets and inside the Web3. What was the term you used for these uh, cold, cold storage hooks? You, you had a phrase. Um, we, just called a, or we just called it virtual cold storage. Virtual cold storage. Why do you call it that? Well, because it's actually, it's not actually, so you kind of, you have a ledger, right? Which is like a cold wallet. So you could call that kind of like cold storage. But in this case, like your key might not be cold. It might actually be hot. Um, so it might be an array or it might be a pass key. It's kind of like virtual cold, virtually cold. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. All right. Because th this is kind of, all right, we'll, we'll get back to some of the, the terminology and the fracturing of the market, et cetera, stuff in a second. But this is kind of part of my question. Do, do you imagine Rhinestone will replace other software wallets or, or maybe even hardware wallets because you can get some kind of additional security assurances with things like the, the hooks you're describing? Yeah, I think this is a really good question. And I would probably say that, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm pretty bullish on account abstraction and my hypothesis is that um, account abstraction or, or smart contract wallets will replace most existing wallets. 
And you might still have something like a ledger, but as a signer, um, kind of on on a wallet, which actually holds the assets. So I would say that's that's my hypothesis there. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. When you talk about trying to align people around terminology, are you speaking about people who are working in the 4337 stack or something even more specific than that? Yeah, more specific than that. So I would call, so, so there's kind of like the general account abstraction movement. And then there's kind of the subset, which I would say we're working in, is the kind of modular account abstraction, which like we were talking about, like aims to kind of modularize these, these accounts so that users can kind of plug and play different features. Um, so that's kind of where we tried, or we've been trying to align people on on using kind of the, the same terminology. Okay, so this this is perfect because in your WTF is AA blog from May, you discuss the difference between the four three three seven approach and the two five three five diamond approach to account abstraction. Um, maybe could you explain a little bit about what the difference is between the two of those and where it stands today? Yeah, yeah. Um... So it isn't the difference between kind of the 437 approach and the diamond approach is more... So both of these, I would say, obviously you can have a content tracking without 437, but in this context, like both of these build, like both of the different approaches I talk about build on 437. But essentially kind of what 437 is, it's it's essentially just, it standardizes how smart contract accounts um, are called using kind of like an alternative mempool and you can get um, stuff like censorship resistance from that, as opposed to kind of guarantees that you couldn't get from just using a normal centralized relayer. But what I talk about specifically is kind of like 437 is very minimal in what it specifies for how account should look. Um, in fact, it only has basically one requirement, which is that you have to have um, the validate user op function, and you can only do specific things during the validation phase. But everything else is kind of left up to the account to decide. So kind of Within this approach to modularize these accounts, um, there are a couple of different approaches, and and you could call them, for example, the diamond-inspired approach, and then the um, the safe approach, which kind of safe has been working on for for quite a while. Obviously, like like I said before, they're, they're not kind of natively four three seven compatible, but in the context of what I talk about, like kind of just assume that that they will be at some point in the in the near future. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, totally. So so there are different ways of actually implementing four three three seven wallets in practice, and so maybe can you can you stake out what the difference is between the way Safe does it and the Diamond approach? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the Diamond approach is obviously inspired by um, um, the Diamond proxy standard, which is a way to modularize smart contracts. And how that works is essentially you store pointers to to function selectors and and addresses. And basically, whenever a call comes in, you look up in this essentially so it's essentially a lookup table where you just look up what is the function signature that comes in, and then you get the address. And then you externally, well, you actually delegate call to that address, uh, which essentially means that you grab the code that's at that contract, at that address, and then execute it from within the contract. So essentially what that means is you can have a single kind of like main contract that holds the state, and then you can have multiple contracts that essentially like almost like sit around it that hold different pieces of code. And whenever you need a specific piece of code, you essentially just grab that and execute that on the state of the main contract. And, and those are facets, those external pieces of code? Exactly. So the diamonds kind of the diamond standard calls these facets. Um, there's been kind of debates about the language and the terminology here, but yeah. So and, and so one approach, overall, you oh. you like that? I've heard of people. I've never written a diamond contract before, but I've heard people say that they're they can be difficult to understand, uh, and they can maybe also introduce. I suppose because you're calling external code on internal state, they can maybe be a little bit more dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, first of all, the terminology can be a bit confusing. Like, I don't dislike it as much as other people probably. Um, but I think the big problem 
is that really what diamonds are designed to do is get around kind of large or essentially make large contracts possible. So there's a code size limit, um, which is, I think, 24 kilobytes of bytecode. But obviously, sometimes you might want to have more code. So that's one thing that they make possible. But I think the main focus and the main inspiration for diamonds is from when a single team wants to you know, either make it easier to upgrade specific pieces of code or, like I said, get around the code size limit. But they weren't designed to be used by multiple teams, and some of which might be malicious. Um, so that's the big issue with diamonds, because you're essentially kind of taking external code and then executing it on your state without actually having guarantees that, you know, that external code doesn't mess up your state. And so in the contract of a smart contract wallet, that could mean that the external code could just like replace the owner of your smart contract wallet, um, which would obviously be very bad. Right. Is this, maybe this is not exactly the same thing, but there was the parity wallet uh, problems years ago. Um, was that because, that was maybe because of initialization of contracts from factories or something? Yeah, I'm not super familiar with it, but I don't think it was the same okay, issue. Same. But so essentially delegate calls, uh, I guess, are delegate calls and reentrancy kind of, uh, do they rhyme in a way? Not necessarily. So they're, they're a bit different. Um, so delegate calls, kind of the problem there is more that you need to essentially completely trust um, the code that you're kind of delegate calling because it can perform any operation on on the state of, of, the, of the calling smart contract. Okay, got it. But you seem to think of it as having some advantages, even though that's like a little bit scary. As long as you know that you can trust the code that you're calling, if you know the address uh, of the contract you're calling and uh, delegate calling, I should say, and you know that it's immutable, then I guess you can trust it if you've verified it in the past. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely advantages. I think in the kind of like in the account abstraction kind of talk, I would probably lean towards uh, or lean away from them. But like, you can't deny that there are some advantages to, to using diamonds. So one example is obviously they are stateless, um, which means you can deploy them once and and kind of you can like write them very easily, as opposed to if you write a singleton that's stateful, you have to use like mappings for different kind of like people that might store data. I think that's one thing. And the other thing is um USD four three seven, like I said, I think earlier, has some specifications about what can and can't be done during the verification phase. Um and one of those things is that you can only access the storage of the account and very specific storage starts on external contracts. And what that means specifically is if you delegate call and get some piece of code to essentially execute on the storage of the account, then you're fine. Then there's no problems with the 437 specs. But if that contract is external and you write or want to read states from that contract that's not kind of in those specific slots that 437 allows, then you're actually not allowed to do that. Um, so that uh, so that's uh, that presents some problems for building validators. And the enforcement of those rules about which slots you're able to access are something that's a part of the four three three seven spec and and that's expected to be implemented in a true four three three seven compliant implementation contract. Yeah, and and that's um, more specifically, it's also verified or it's implemented in the bundles. They perform those checks. Oh, so if you use a bundle that's compliant, that will reject kind of reject um, a user op that, that doesn't comply. And also once the mempool, uh, once the alt mempool is up and running, all the bundles I think are expected to comply to the specs. So uh, you wouldn't be able to use the, the alt mempool. And that's something that they can do by simulating the transaction. Exactly. Yeah. And and the reason, I mean, we can go into this like more in depth, but I think there's, there's better people to talk about this is, is essentially DOS protection for the mempool. Hmm. 
Okay, very interesting. And you mentioned sort of in passing that the mempool is not available yet, the alt mempool for these things. How, how, I guess, what's the difference between this state of the art today for this stuff and where we're headed with the uh, alt mempool for 4337? Yeah, yeah. Um, so not the, the most up-to-date because um, um, kind of all the bundler devs are, are actually building the mempool and I'm not, not, not currently building a bundler. But essentially how it works today is you essentially, you select the bundler that um, either you host yourself or, or someone else hosts for you. And you send your user operation or yeah, your, your user operation directly to that bundler. And then that bundler directly kind of sends it on chain. Whereas later on, you would um, directly or indirectly send it into the mempool. And then bundlers kind of would pick the user ops out of the mempool and include them on chain, similar to how you have the normal kind of transaction mempool on Ethereum. And there's like a whole 1559 style priority fee situation for I don't know the details of it but but it, it operates like a full mempool essentially exactly yeah I think so hmm, very interesting okay I'm gonna have to get some bundler uh, people on is there <laughs> what, what teams are working on that that are interesting yeah um, there's Pimlico so Christoph is one of the authors of 437 actually and um, he's he's building bundlers and paymasters um, there's Stackup there's kind of Etherspot and Biconomy have their own bundlers as well Alchemy obviously well you already spoke to, to Noam right um, but they, they have their bundler so yeah, there's quite a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people. Okay, a lot of, lot of good. We're not going to run out of guests for the show. <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah, um, that's true. So yeah, speaking of that alchemy, the recent alchemy interview with uh, Will and Noam, they are working on an AA plugin architecture. Do you think it's compatible with the architecture that you're coming up with? Or are they working on a completely different uh, approach? Yeah, yeah. So the architecture is kind of under the umbrella or, or is essentially ERC 6900. And... So kind of one thing I haven't gone into actually yet is we started off building an account. We built that at Denver and then continued building that for a month more. But then actually, well, two things started to happen. So first of all, um, more and more people kind of started to jump in and, and started to build modular accounts like ZeroDev, who built the kernel and Economy and, and also Alchemy, like releasing ERC 6900. And that was the first realization that like kind of more and more people are going to build accounts and account might, accounts might become commoditized. Um, modular account specifically. Um, and the second realization is actually there is other infrastructure that is required in this kind of modular ecosystem that doesn't yet exist. Uh, most importantly, kind of infrastructure around the security, which I can go into in a second. So I actually stopped working on a modular account and started working on almost a translation layer between accounts. And, and that translation layer essentially aims to A, give security guarantees to users and also one of our main goals is to allow developers to easily build modules that works uh, that work on any account. So whether that is a 6900 compliant account, a safe, a you know anything else, basically. Okay. So just to make sure we don't lose a thread here, so we were talking about the diamond versus safe approach. I guess that's a separate conversation from the 6900 conversation. Yeah. So 6900 started off on the diamond side. It wasn't like hardcore diamond, but very much inspired. Um, I'm not sure if they removed it from the ERC, but um, at, the, at the very first draft at least had um, um, they were talking about how it was quite inspired by diamonds. But it's kind of moved further away from that, um, especially from Delegate's call um, for the reasons we talked about earlier. Okay, and before we get into the details of 6900, uh, maybe can you explain what the safe approach is uh, that's different from diamond approach? Sure, sure. Um, so safe, so they've um, for a long time kind of in the safe, you've been able to execute transactions on the safe from a module. And basically how that flow works is um, you somehow trigger a module, which is obviously an external contract, and then that external contract calls into the safe, and then that safe executes something. 
Whereas like kind of going back to, to the diamond approach, the flow is actually kind of reversed where first the account is called and that then something like gets code. I mean, the, the dedicated caller could be an external call and executes that. Whereas like here, the approach is more of a callback into the account. So that's a big difference here. Hmm. And what are the advantages or drawbacks of the two options? So the advantages are definitely, it's more, was well, definitely more battle-tested battle and, and arguably, and I think most people would agree, it's, it's more secure. Mm. The disadvantages, it's, it obviously costs more gas, especially say you had a 437 module on safe. This might get, I was explaining this flow to someone the other day and they got really confused after like two seconds. But, but the kind of, the flow would be the entry point calls the 437 module, which calls the safe which then kind of calls some sort of manager contract, which then calls the executor module, which then calls the save, then the save executes something. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so uh, when you say it's uh, like much more expensive, despite it's maybe greater battle-testedness, it's because of all of these calls to external contracts. Exactly, yeah. And w what's the difference in the cost of a delegate call versus a external regular call? I actually think that there isn't a difference in the, in the minimum gas cost. I think... Yeah, I don't think there's a difference, but the, like you said, like the main difference here is that the number of calls. Okay. So on the kind of like diamond account, you would just have one to the account and then one delegates call, whereas like here you'd have like multiple. Is is there maybe something also about like slots being hot because they're on a, a like in the context of the calling contract in a delegate call, or maybe not if you haven't touched the state of those uh, storage slots yet? Yeah, that's a good point actually. Yeah, you, you could get some savings um, because you might be accessing multiple slots, um, uh, the same slot multiple times. That is true. Um, you do get some savings for external, well, for any call if the address is hot as well. Uh, right. So some some savings, but am I crazy or it's, it seems a little scary to be, doing, to be doing delegate calls out of my wallet, but it sounds like that's where we're headed. Well, uh, I actually don't think so. Um, I think it seemed like we were heading for that for a bit, but then I think a lot of people, like I said, like 6,900 6, and, and most other people were like, this is a bit crazy, kind of like you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. And I'm sure, I mean, think how many, not, can't be that many people who are already worried about this. It's a pretty yeah. niche subject, but uh, an interesting one nonetheless. Okay. So ERC 6900, modular smart contract accounts and plugins. So you're saying it's not going, uh, yeah. Where, where are we headed with this diamond versus safe pattern? And how does this relate to 6900? Yeah, I think like, I would probably say we're very sensibly kind of headed and into kind of like a compromise between the two and kind of meeting in the middle um, and, and trying to get the most, uh, the best out of both of them. Obviously, I can, if, if you want, I can dive kind of like deeper into it. Um, but I think that's like the high level takeout. Yeah, that's great. So, okay, let, let's talk about 6900. You touched on it a little bit, but maybe can you explain like what is it trying to achieve? Because it's sort of, uh, is it a direct uh, s a successor or sequel in a way to 4337 or are there other EIPs that in between that it's relying on? Yeah, it's, so it builds directly on 437. And, and like I said, like 437 has like very minimal kind of um, things to say about how smart contract wallets actually work. And, and 6900 actually is specifically focused on that, how, um, well, in this case, modular um, smart contract wallets like work. And, and the main kind of like rationale or the, the, the main goal, I guess, of um, 6900 is to make sure that modules are compatible on different kind of implementations and obviously also that like these implementations are kind of the, the most secure that they can be. And and kind of this deals to A, like make the, the life of module developers easier because so, they can build a module once and then kind of deploy it to any account. And it also means that users are less likely to get locked in because you might then 
um, you know, create a 6900 account on whatever interface, right? Like, say, like, Alchemy has an interface. Um, but then you're actually like, oh, wow, like, this other company, um, call them, like, Company B, has a really cool interface. I actually want to use my same account with my same transaction history and assets. But actually, like, this is not my preferred interface. And this is obviously is, like, very easy to do if you have an EOA. You just, like, export the private key from MetaMask and go into Rainbow or whatever. But you can't do that with smart contract wallets um, today. Right. So w- this is one of the things that you mentioned in, uh, or maybe it's uh, Kurt, uh, but in any case, in, in some of the blog posts from Rhinestone, you talk about this fear, like concern about vendor lock-in, essentially, and having plugins that are specific to particular, you call them interfaces, but I would have I would have used the word implementation. Uh, w- w- maybe you can correct me. How, how, how do you, you you'd say Alchemy's interface for 4337 is, is really the deciding factor here? If it has a different interface, then the plugins won't work with it, I suppose? Yeah, actually, this was uh, probably a bit confusing on my end. I actually didn't mean to use interface in the sense of like a Solidity interface. Oh, okay. Um, but like a kind of a front end. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. Okay. So but yeah. basi- basically, the goal we're aiming for is that all AA wallets that comply with 4337 be able to have the same modules, you know, uh, compatible with them. And 6900 is the way to get there. Yes, exactly. And 6900, I mean, I, I keep hearing the name. It's still a draft, but my sense is that there's like pretty broad support for something like this happening. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people are excited about it. I think, um, and we've, we've, we've told the team quite a few times, like um, it's hard to actually kind of see how far it's gotten without a reference implementation, without actual code you can look at. And I think they're working pretty hard and have been pushed by basically everyone in the space to kind of get this reference implementation out there so that we can actually finally look at some code and look how the how the account actually looks as opposed to just um, you know reading the text and the specifications and I think they they're meant to release that um, pretty soon um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that and I think after that we can actually have a lot more focused kind of talks as a community around like the specific code um, of how these accounts will look that's exciting so for the like commodity commodity four three three seven um, contracts, do you think there will be a shelling point that everyone will end up just using more or less the same contract, or are we going to have lots of different contracts? Like, what what are the different affordances that you would even be worth having different contracts for? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question. I think there's, I mean, I could I could argue for both sides. So so one of the sides is. Um, Basically, we might up end the uh, kind of we might end up converging to the same um, very minimal kind of but extensible account um, that everyone uses, and then really what your account is 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 just the module. So essentially, what you as the owner kind of makes it to be. But there could also be um, which is more similar to what exists today. There could be different account implementations like um, economies or or safes or or the kernel by zero dev, um, and they all have kind of like different trade offs. Um, so some might be more gas expensive, but arguably more secure. So I guess like, I mean, that that's kind of like a spectrum of trade-off, like gas versus security, I would say. And I, yeah, there's probably a couple of others. Um, but yeah. But essentially, not, not mostly just these kind of under the hood optimizations, not really functional differences uh, between the different account implementations. Yeah, yeah, I, I would think so as well. Modules. Exactly. I would think so as well. Um, yeah. So how does 6900 intend to make modules something uh, standardized? What, what is the way that modules will interact with 4337 accounts? Yeah, so without kind of going into the specific, specifics too much, it basically standardizes a how specific module types look. Um, so the actual like Solidity interface um, and what functions they must kind of have. 
And then also it, it specifies how accounts call these modules. Um, and that's essentially just the, the pieces that you need. And then the, the steps in between, like different accounts, kind of builders can, can decide. Um, like I said, like maybe you opt for security, maybe you want to have some insane optimizations. But yeah, that, that's the main aspect of it, I would say. Okay. And uh, you're not, uh, Rhinestone is not one of the authors on uh, 6900. So w- what's left for Rhinestone to do if 6900 is coming into play? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I would say something pretty big is, is still left. Obviously, you wouldn't work on that uh, on Rhinestone if it wasn't. Um, but you still kind of, with 6900, even if you don't delegate call to a module, you still, as a user, you need to know that you can trust that, that module. Like that's true even if you don't delegate call to it, because for example, even if that module kind of call, calls back into the account, it could just tell the account to kind of like transfer all the assets somewhere else. And the way we think about kind of adding protection to users, especially to users who can't like manually audit every single kind of module that they install, which is obviously the majority of users, is we introduced this kind of concept called the registry. And that registry essentially allows people, and those people mostly being kind of security, auditing for, for uh, firms, or maybe kind of automated like scripts and, and, and that kind of stuff, to essentially make security statements about these modules, which we call attestations. And users who then install or want to use a module, um, they can then query the registry with that module address and essentially ask it, like, is this still safe to use? And if it is, then they use it. And if, if it's kind of like been flagged as not secure, then they might, you know, not use it or uninstall it or not install it. So the registries will function something like a on-chain Yelp for modules. Sure, but <laughs> for security, I guess. <laughs> but essentially, entities like known entities will attest to the security properties uh, and can then, if they discover some problem in like a new version, or I guess, are there versions of modules even, or it's for a specific version that they make an attestation? I guess. Yeah. Um, you could have kind of modules that are upgradable. I think we as a security entity will strongly prefer like modules that aren't upgradable just because it's uh, easier from a security perspective and, and kind of like less things can go wrong. But yeah, you could have, well, you can have versions that have different addresses, but in theory, you also could have versions that have the same address, although it's less secure. So it would just be up to the attesting organization if they want to attest to an upgradable module. That's sort of on them. But then if, uh, so let's say, uh, what kind of organization might do that? Like a security auditing firm, for example? Exactly. Yeah. Um, So security security auditing firm, um, kind of either, it could be sole auditors, it could be kind of like just normal auditors, it could be someone who's doing formal verification or other kind of more automated type of um, security um, testing. And... This registry would live on which chain or all of them? Yeah, yeah. so it would have to live on all of them. Um, that's one of the issues. Or at least until we solve um, some of the cross-chain problems. Um, so actually, for example, I'm not sure if you've read Vitalik's post about the key store, um, but you could use the same for a module registry. You could read from, an, from a different chain. For example, if it lived on mainnet, you, once that's kind of like that infrastructure is in place, you could read on it from Optimism. But until then, it kind of has to live on, on every chain. So is the, uh, congratulations, by the way, on the recent EF grant. Um, I take it it's to, to work on this problem? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we've been working with um, the 437 team, um, or they've been supporting us in, in kind of like figuring out this problem, essentially. Very cool. 
So, okay, so there's a registry, and then there's going to be people attesting to the security uh, properties of different contracts, saying that they're, uh, you know, good or not good. And then from <laughs> the perspective of someone installing a plugin, I guess the idea is that the front ends would pull in some of the attestation data to give you kind of like a verified uh, review, security review of the uh, plugin before you click install. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you would you could have this on the front end, um, which obviously like might mean more or less to a user depending on how technical they are. Um, but the more important part is that you actually also perform this check on chain, because like I said, like one of the things that um, six nine hundreds or in general like kind of modular accounts um, aims to solve is is kind of removing the vendor lock in, which is great because you can take your account to a different kind of like wallet interface um, and and use it there. But it's also bad because you might go to a malicious interface. And then it tells you to install this this module, and it says, "Oh yeah, this is safe," but actually, it's not. Before we go further on that, how would I even switch from one interface to another interface? Like, let's say, I guess maybe passkeys are a little bit restrictive because there are some domain restrictions about using them. So let's just say that it's an EOA signer. I'm using MetaMask to to control my AA wallet. How would I switch from one interface to another? I guess just connect in with MetaMask on a different UI. Yeah, for example. So we're, we're working on something um, for the reference implementation where you can connect your MetaMask. And then if you have existing saves, um, those will kind of pop up and, and you can use those saves like in the reference implementation and kind of start modding them. So basically the interface is able to go look up which saves you, this uh, EOA that's connected in like the injected in the browser, which, which saves it's an owner of? Exactly. Yeah. And... Like you could also just have the user import the address of, of the smart contract wallets. Obviously, that would be kind of more cumbersome. But but yeah, there's, there's there's different ways of doing it. Yeah, I'm curious about what this experience is going to be like. I, I don't know that I've seen like a really solid uh, demo where people are logging into experiences as the AA wallet, even if all that they have in their personal custody is some kind of signer, like a passkey or an EOA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like I I don't have anything to show right now, but I think it'll be basically like like you described it. Okay, so discover for the specific case. Yeah, exactly. So you'll basically sign in with the signer key um, or whatever authentication mechanism that is, and then the interface will handle all the the nasty business of figuring out what contracts you own or what <laughs> accounts you own. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm, very cool. Okay, so we were talking a little bit about permissions and and the registry stuff. So you're saying that also you could have uh, maybe like a plugin uh, or module. Uh, you, you tell me which terminology, but where my account would essentially reject uh, adding additional plugins if they don't, uh, if they aren't on the list of uh, authorized ones from some trusted security firm or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, on, on the terminology, we've kind of tried to push people to use modules, like generally, and um, because some people call executors plugins, um, and some people call executors plugins, and then everything else also plugins. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so one of the things we've been working on is is what we call um, adapters, and it's those kind of adapters. and And those adapters, they might be modules, but they could also be kind of native functionality in the account. And those adapters are kind of responsible for performing this check on the registry, depending. So, a user can decide like, do they want to perform this check only when they install a module, or do they also want to kind of perform this check every time they use that module, which would obviously be more expensive but more secure. And that would be in the case where the module's functionality changes over time, it's upgradable, or, or it depends on something external to the module itself? Yeah, not even, right? Like, you, you have a lot of contracts that never change, but after, like, I don't know, like a year, like, someone finds an exploit, right? Mm. So it's just kind of like for ongoing security. 
Okay, so so just to walk through the whole flow, make sure I understand. So basically, I sign up on let's just say Rhinestone or you know, uh, Brinestone, <laughs> some app version <laughs> of Rhinestone, um, <clears throat> and I sign up for. I log in with uh, my Touch ID or Face ID. It generates a pass key. It uh, counterfactually deploys an AA account onto some lovely L two. Uh, so. And in this counterfactual deployment, it's also going to specify, of course, the WebAuthn plugin in order to be able to verify my R1 signatures. But maybe it'll also specify, sorry, module. Maybe it'll also specify <laughs> another module uh, that mm -hmm. will check, or maybe it's intrinsic to the account where it's going to check uh, either only at install time or every time I send a user op, whether or not that uh, module that it's interfacing with is on uh, the Brinestone uh, trusted list of... Uh, in the registry, essentially, that it's attested to by the Brinestone devs. And then if it's not, it'll just, the transaction will just revert or, or won't even be propagated from the mempool because it won't be a valid transaction. Exactly. Yeah. Very yeah, good. I think that's a good summary. Sweet. That sounds great. <laughs> How long do I have to wait? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> so we're, <laughs> so we've been, yeah, I mean, we've been working pretty hard on, on the registry and um, we're releasing v0.2 now after like a lot of feedback. And I think we're pretty happy with where it is now. And, and so the, the other two things that we've been working on are kind of one on the user side, like I said, the, the reference implementation. So for that, I think I would say we'll have some early testers um, on, on the reference implementation kind of this side of Christmas, but the, the majority will be um, kind of after, well, after the new year, essentially. And that's a reference and implementation of, of which piece specifically? So that's a reference implementation of a modular wallet. So okay. kind of like the, the front-end interface. <clears throat> and, and the reason we're building this is kind of, was well, twofold, actually. So, so one of them is definitely just kind of getting this concept out there and having people play with modular accounts. Because right now, like, it's, it's like we can talk about it, we can show you mocks, but, but no one actually has an interface for a modular account. So it's still kind of out there. Um, and the second, the second kind of purpose of it is just being a playground, both for us and then also for other developers to test like building modules and building the front end components for modules and then just play around with that basically. So this will be a reference 6900 wallet. I guess we'll eventually move from talking about 4337 wallets to talking about 6900 wallets or accounts. I should yeah. Say. Yeah. Yeah. So on launch, it won't be 6900 compatible because, um, it like, there's not enough time, basically, from the reference implementation and so on. But we'll use different kind of modular accounts under the hood. Um, so like I said before, like you, you can import your safe, which is obviously modular, or we can spin up a different modular account for you under the hood. Oh, okay. So you're even going to kind of um, agglomerate all the different underlying implementations into a modular experience that, that papers over the difference between safes and, uh, and 6900s. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would at least be, yeah, we'll, we'll have some of that in, in kind of like the early version. And then um, if we continue building this kind of longer term, if we see value there, then we would, yeah, like you were saying, like aggregate basically um, all of the accounts out there or a lot of the accounts out there that we think do, we think are worth to support. Interesting. Okay. So, so Rhinestone then is kind of uh, leading the charge for, or part of the many people leading the charge uh, to make modular smart contract accounts a reality. Uh, and you're also going to go the extra distance and not just put your weight behind 6900, but but also support these other things that are out there. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, we're we're pretty big fans of 6900. I think one um, kind of critique, um, not of 6900 specifically, but generally of kind of the approach of write the standard first and then build implementations, is you just get less experimentation, right? Like if everyone 
if 10 people or 10 different teams decided to build a modular account first, and then we kind of kind of get in a room a year later and say, okay, cool, like here's the learnings, like what should the standard be like? That could arguably be a better way to do it. So I, I think experimentation makes a lot of sense at this point. Um, but uh, my hope at least is for 6900 to, to take learnings for different places anyways and kind of converge on a standard that makes the most sense. Okay, I see. That makes sense. So, so really, you're building out this uh, reference implementation or an attempt at it, at least, in order to try and practice with some real running code uh, simultaneous to the development of the 6900 thing. So it's, it's not uh, competing. It's sort of a simultaneous effort. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned two things there. Um, the first was the, we talked about the 6900 stuff. We talked about the reference implementation. Was there a third thing that you're working on that you wanted to, to mention? Right, yeah. Um, so the other kind of like, I guess, side of the marketplace, you could call it, um, is, is obviously developers who are building modules. So we've been pretty focused on, well, A, building modules ourselves, and then kind of taking the learnings from that and, and helping build to build tools that allows other developers to build modules and, and ship modules as well. Um, so one thing we released um, a few weeks ago now, I think, or maybe a couple of months ago now, actually, is called the Module Kit, which is basically an abstraction library that lets you really easily kind of build a module and then test it on on launch. It was just um, the save. So it kind of had like a library or it has like a library that abstracts the entire testing away from you. So you just build the module. And then there's kind of, for example, like a helper function, which is called exec4.37. And you just call that and it executes a 4.37 transaction for you that goes from the entry point to the account and does everything kind of under the hood. And, and we're working right now to support other accounts as well. Um, so that's kind of the other area that we are pretty heavily focused on. So module devs can just focus on building their module and not dealing with all the other plumbing. Exactly, exactly. Very cool. Before I forget, I wanted to ask about the registry. Is the idea that there's a single registry uh, on every chain or that there can be even multiple registries? Yeah, that's a really good question. So one of the things that we're, um, like we've thought quite a lot about and, and we're pretty convinced that it's a, it might be the best approach is to have a singleton registry. So yeah, a single registry on on every chain. And the main reason for that is basically that you have kind of maximum module liquidity, I guess you could call it, which basically means that you can always go to the same place and all the modules will be there, which also makes it harder to lock in people into a specific registry um, and into kind of only being able to use the modules on that registry. Um, so the way we've designed the registry we've been working on is essentially it's kind of permissionless. Anyone can deploy a module, anyone can attest as well. Um, it's only us. We can't like upgrade it after it's deployed, and it's obviously free to use. But um, that being said, there might still be reasons why you would want to have your own registry. Off the top of my head, I'm not sure if kind of any of those reasons are super valid at this point. Um, but I think that could still be the case. So basically, one advantage of it being a singleton is that you get the same address, most likely across all chains, right? Uh, barring exactly. any strangeness to a specific chain. So that'll that'll be kind of easy. I mean, just simplify implementation for everybody and avoid bugs and, and make a single place, as you say, avoid lock-in and things like that. That's interesting. I, I, I was talking to somebody at SAFE who was t telling me a little bit about their uh, approach to registries uh, at ETH Global NYC. And I think their approach there maybe are more focused on having multiple registries rather than a single place. I, I'm not sure. But it sounds like there is a variety of designs uh, competing in the space right now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think with SAFE, it's still kind of up in the air. Like um, for, for the SAFE protocol right now, like um, it does look like they want to support multiple registries, but I also haven't seen a reference implementation of a registry yet. 
So it kind of might still change. I think, I guess the, the biggest downside of using a singleton is obviously it's this kind of like a central point of failure, which, you know, obviously is, is a major downside. But it's kind of like the same downside, for example, that the 437 entry point has. It's kind of also a singleton um, that pretty much everyone uses, which could also be a central point of failure. But like, if kind of, especially the community or just like kind of auditors and uh, pull the resources and, and everyone kind of gets behind and, and helps secure the single, uh, single point, then it can lead to a lot of upsides. But yeah, I, I think you're right. Like we will still see kind of how it plays out. Um, I think the, it's the users, like the end users who would win the most if it was a singleton. But yeah, things might not be as kind of like easy as, as they are in, in, in kind of like in theory. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of complexity in this emerging AA uh, field. And I can already sense people uh, not being excited about <laughs> much additional complexity and dependencies there are even on, I mean, on standards, uh, not, not, not on companies or centralized parties necessarily, but just it's a lot more complicated than uh, uh, an EOA. Definitely. Yeah, that's, that's true for sure. It'll be interesting to see if you know, it, it seems like the UX for this stuff will enable things like passkeys, for example, which could potentially way outstrip the number of EOAs in a relatively short period of time. If any killer applications come along that happen to build in AA wallets, seems like we could really have an explosive growth in accounts that could make the preponderance of EOAs today seem a, a little bit less uh, insurmountable. But uh, it definitely does feel like there's a lot of new stuff to understand uh, and maybe some dangers in, in, in adopting so many things at the same time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I guess like our jobs as, as people building in the space is to, um, especially for the mainstream end user, like to simplify it as much as possible. Um, not just the UX, but kind of how the entire thing like is presented and how we talk about it and so on. But but I fully agree. I think like definitely passkeys and, and a lot of really other uh, really cool other interesting stuff. Like, for example, being to do uh, being able to do kind of automated trades like DCA or kind of like limit orders or whatever, like stuff that right now in crypto, you can only do really in, in centralized exchanges, unless you want to give, give up custody of either your key or your assets. I think there's a lot of other really cool stuff that's enabled by modular accounts. And that will draw in a lot of people. I guess you can even do things maybe like intents where you don't have a lingering approval, but it's just built into the intent itself and sort of extinguishes itself at the end of the transaction. Yeah, definitely. Um, you can also, for example, you could have a module that is triggered kind of at whatever frequency you want that like revokes all of your allowances um, for your EC20 tokens. Or you, could even, cool. or you could even kind of have a service that you trust or you could kind of build in some, some kind of like way to, to verify that trust on chain, but some service that can monitor hacks and say if DEX1 um, is hacked, it will kind of try to front run the attack or, or at the very least kind of get out your liquidity as quickly as possible or remove your allowances um, kind of as, as quickly as possible. Mm, that's cool. That reminds me, I think it's Harpy that works something like that, where if they detect a malicious transaction in the mempool emanating from your account, uh, they can, uh, like from a, I guess from a vault, I think they have a separate signer that can try to front run the malicious transaction and remove the approval or move the, I think actually it, it only has permission to move the assets into a vault that only you control. So I guess you could achieve something right. like that even even in a simpler design with a, a module. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a couple of kind of different projects. I actually previously worked on something during a hackathon um, where we tried to front run hacks and then basically pause um, using kind of like the, the possible um, kind of, I'd, what is it, like Open Zeppelin has a possible um, kind of like library and, and essentially tr tries to prevent like draining 
contracts or training taxes or whatever. But yeah, I think that that concept is really cool when you, especially when you kind of can can start moving that functionality right into your wallets. Yeah. Yeah, maybe even make it a default for someone on a, on one of uh, on on Brinestone. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of modules, this is super interesting. I think there's probably some prospective module devs listening. So, we talked about a, a handful of things. Are there any other I, one that jumped out at me from the demo that I saw is a dead man switch we didn't talk about yet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the dead man switch is is pretty cool. Um, obviously, I'm not sure how many people will actually use it. Um, hopefully, not that many, especially people that properly set up kind of recovery. I think we actually have a list. Um, um, it's linked to in our docs, and it, it lives on our notion about of about maybe twenty six or or something like that module ideas uh, that we've just kind of like thought about over time and, and been pretty excited about. But yeah, I've, I've I've already named quite a few exciting ones like the virtual cold storage and so on. W- one that we've been talking about internally is is kind of similar to what you were talking I think about earlier with the flash phones. You could also kind of do. NFT rental directly from your account. Or actually, instead of moving that asset, you just give someone else the permission to, you know, for example, prove ownership of that asset using a signature. I think that could be quite cool. That's awesome. We sort of mentioned it in passing a couple of times, but social recovery is a big issue, or I guess recovery in general. Uh, Do you have any ideas about how recovery ought to work for this kind of wallet? Yeah, um, I think recovery should be a module, um, obviously. And one thing that's that's kind of like quite interesting is um, we were talking about validators earlier, and and you can have multiple validators, right? Like you could have a WebAuthn or a Passkeys one, and you could have a an EOA one where you have like a ledger, for example. And the issue is like on a naive implementation, like you might have to have recovery for every plugin uh, for every validator specifically. Um, so your Passkeys. Um, kind of validation module has social recovery inbuilt, and then when you want to change the guardians um, or or whatever you want to call it, kind of like the, the the entities that can help you recover, you have to change it there. But then you also have to change it kind of on your EOA validator that you use the, your ledger for. Um, so I think kind of the way that recovery will work is it'll kind of be a separate module as well that can then interface with these other validation modules and, and help recover them. That's very smart. So basically one. Uh, source of truth on how to do recovery across all of the uh, the keys, all the signers. Exactly. Like you might still have different recovery modules that have different ways to recover. Like you might have a social one, and you might have an EWA based one, and maybe they, those could even have different permissions. But yeah, exactly. Kind of like you were saying. Hmm. Very very cool. W- w- speaking of permissions, um, at least the impression that I got from the demo from ETH Denver uh, is that permissions are handled by either adding or removing a plugin or sorry, a module, um, and that there's no separate notion of permissions. Is that how you think about it? Permissions, do you mean permissions to kind of execute transactions from the accounts? Or Yeah, like let, let's say that we lived in a world post-Rhinestone, uh, post-6900, and something like Frentech were to come out, and you wanted to connect to Frentech with an existing wallet rather than creating a new embedded wallet with a signer specific to, uh, to, to the app. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you might not want to give it access to your whole vault. You might just want to have some limited permissions. Would the like uh, likely path be that someone like Frentech would have to build a module that you would interact with? Or would you have some way of defining some set of permissions that maybe a specific signer that lives inside of the Frentech PWA can only execute certain kinds of transactions? Right. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, there's, there's different ways you can do this. And, and one of the ways that people talk about is, is session keys. And so you can kind of create specific keys, and those might be your keys, but they could as well be a pass key. 
and then link that key to specific permissions. So, so those permissions might be related to the contract that it or contracts that it can interact with, might be the value or the call data that it can send, or it might be kind of like restricted to a period of time. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something that's 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 possible, and, and some people already have some session key session key modules in production, even I think. So session keys are something that, in the absence of modules, you could configure directly on a four three three seven contract. Uh, but with modules, it would make sense to use a session key module to simplify that interaction and standardize it, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you could even have different implementations of session keys um, like that simultaneously live in your account as different modules because some might have... <clears throat> I think this, <laughs> this is actually a pretty recurring theme, um, the, the, the trade-off between gas and security. Mm. Um, but, but some might be more secure, but kind of cost more gas to verify or whatever. But yeah. Very interesting. Uh, so many, so many trade-offs. But I feel like we're headed a very <laughs> good direction with all this stuff. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm really excited about the space and and modular accounts and and all of the things that they can unlock for for users, whether that be us or whether that be mainstream users. So we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, continuing with this Brinestone <laughs> example, <laughs> if I go to an app uh, and I want, so maybe the answer is that session keys are the um, sort of sixty nine hundred native. Uh, equivalent to something like Wallet Connect, that I would just create a new session key and essentially be adding a module or a permission to an existing module already on my 4337 account, uh, rather than like connecting in with something like Wallet Connect, or, or or do you think we actually will still use Wallet Connect and things like that? Yeah, I think I think there's definitely room for both. Um, so how I would think about it is kind of you go to adapt and you connect for the first time, or you know you're just going to connect once. Um, you still do it through Wallet Connect. Um, but then say that app, or say you go to a different app, and that app is a game, and basically every move that you make is is recorded on chain, and so you need to, in theory, you would need to create a user operation. But what you could do is you could just say that app could say, "Here, I'll spin up this key, <clears throat> which only lives in the browser," um, and then you say, "Great, I'll add the public key of that private key um, to my session keys module and give it these permissions," and then from then on, the app within the browser can then kind of create transactions or, or use operations and execute them automatically. So say like you move, um, that that kind of executes that user operation for you. And you kind of don't have to worry about, you know, like a wallet popping up or even taking you to a different browser or using your phone and kind of pressing confirm after everything you do in the game. But it just kind of happens seamlessly. So essentially, in a, in a 6900 or Rhinestone future, it's possible to execute like a one-off transaction uh, from a DAP or an app um, but it's also possible to create like a session key for an enduring relationship. So it's really slick from then on. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm pretty into, uh, I don't know if you saw uh, the latest version of Warpcast is using this uh, mm -hmm. large blob feature uh, attached to passkeys to save the recovery phrase for the uh, Farcaster PK that they need to sign Farcaster casts. So basically mm -hmm. the app keeps in memory the private key, which it uses to sign every time you send a, a, a cast. Uh, but if you ever lose your device, you can recover it by grabbing the pass key off of iCloud Keychain in the future, which essentially restores mm -hmm. something like a kind of uh, low-key session key, I guess you could call it, because it is just a regular <laughs> POA. Right. That's really cool. I, I, I hadn't heard about that. But that's actually that's a really cool design, yeah. It's very slick, and it's it's like in production right now. I think the one thing that's maybe a little tricky, because there's quite a bit of detail to it, is to realize that the fact of putting uh, this uh, Farcaster private key into the large blob associated with a passkey is really just solving for 
backup and recovery if someone loses their device, it doesn't really change the score on that private key living in memory of the app as it runs because it, it needs to have mm -hmm. access to it in order to cast. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess we're going to see a lot of variety in how people go about things. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty excited about kind of all the possibilities that people can, um, all the ways that people can, you know, make um, either transactions kind of on an, of an, on an ongoing basis or just like onboarding or whatever, kind of like slicker and, and just like abstract it away essentially, right? Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm really excited. So is Rhinestone for end users or for devs? It sounds like it's kind of, at least right now, for module devs and kind of helping people to get across the chasm and, and start implementing stuff to accentuate and, and evolve the 4337 uh, reality. But do you ultimately anticipate being something uh, built for end users as well? Yeah, I think that's a good question. We haven't decided, basically. Um, so so, so the, 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 the main thing we're working on is obviously this infrastructure. And we're mostly building for devs, but also kind of like I said, like the reference implementation is kind of user-facing. I personally, kind of like long-term, I think the way is that Rhinestone or kind of this, this like modular ecosystem with, with Rhinestone and the registry and, and kind of like the protocol built on top of this as part of it. And, and that kind of is then bundled and put into different kind of wallets. The wallets here being the, the front-end UIs, whether that's a Chrome extension, mobile app or whatever. And, and that can then power both wallets kind of in the, in the traditional sense and also embedded wallets. That's kind of how I see the end vision. So it would not be directly user-facing, but users would use it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. By the way, we've been throwing around like wallet, account, and all this. It, it, should we really stop saying wallet and just say account? Because or, or, or what's the correct terminology, you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so what we use is basically we call the, the on-chain kind of the smart contract wallet, we call that a smart account. Mm. And then we call the kind of the front-end interface, so the, the thing you interact, actually interact with, we call that the wallet. So the thing that holds the signer, basically. Exactly, yeah. It's tricky because I've always felt wallet is a very, very bad metaphor for what this is. I understand in some sense it's like the thing that it holds the keys to your assets, mm. but it doesn't, I don't know that regu for regular people, wallet means wallet or something. It's, it's more like account. Uh, in terms true. of experience, especially with things like sign-in with Ethereum. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll move to accounts, um, kind of like for everything. I think. Yeah. I also, I also quite like account. I do think it kind of gets complicated if you just say account and then you don't know. This is like the front end now. Is this the back end? Like what? Ex or like the smart contract. But yeah, I, I quite like account as well as a, as a general term. Yeah. I mean, you have a Facebook account, you have a Gmail account, and you have a crypto account. I don't know. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So I only have a couple of questions left and I'll ask you in a second, but um, if, if there's anything we missed, but one, one ERC that we haven't talked about is 6492, the sign signature validation for pre-deploy contracts. Uh, is that something you mm -hmm. think about at all? I think that's, that's a pretty cool ERC. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Um, I actually don't spend that much time thinking about it because it's mostly for, um, it's, it's, it's mostly for dApps. Right, so the so DApps will need to integrate this, just like they need to integrate twelve seventy one. It's it is essentially an extension of twelve seventy one for kind of counterfactual address generation. So yeah, I, I think it's really cool. Um, definitely try to support it, kind of it, and, and just general awareness for DApp builders and to think more about account abstraction. But yeah, I'm not actively involved in, in kind of like um, building it, and, and I sadly don't think about it. Kind of enough. <laughs> Those keep you up at night. But uh, yeah, so for people who don't know, 1271 standard signature validation method for contracts is uh, well, mm -hmm. 
in the, in the terminology of the EIP, a standard way to verify a signature when the account is a smart contract. And I guess we're, that's from way back in 2018, but I think a lot of dApps don't have that currently, right? Like there's a lot of things where you can't uh, connect as a safe, for example, today. Yeah, yeah, it's still an issue. Um, this is it's, it's still an issue both on the DAP side and on on some smart contracts. Mm. But yeah, um, I think yeah, in my mind, the way kind of to get out of there is a kind of just put pressure on basically every DAP to to support this, and then also kind of start educating new people, well, new developers that enter the space, and and kind of start having them think about signatures not only in the EOA signature, like ECDSA signature sense, but also about smart contract signatures. Because I think, um, for example, when I was getting into the space, like I would like look at a tutorial and it's basically like how do you recover a signature, and then it's it just says like use EC recover, right? And like sure that works, but it kind of locks out like smart contract accounts. Yeah, and then this uh, six four nine two signature validation for pre deployed contracts is really cool because a lot of the time you actually don't need to deploy the AA account uh, in order for uh, let's say someone with a passkey or an EOA generated in a, an app or a PWA to be able to start interacting with things. They can be signing, uh, you know, uh, mint permits and tents, all kinds of different things, uh, connecting to apps that ask them to uh, sign something to agree to their terms of service, etc. They could do all of that without actually having spent any gas and not even being subsidized by some kind of sponsor either if uh, the, the DAP supports uh, 6492. So that's pretty cool. That's right. Yeah, that's super cool. I think one of the coolest things that starting to be adopted or, or basically the default for smart contract wallets today um, is counterfactual deployments. Kind of like you said, like you get an address as soon as you create the account, but actually the account isn't actually deployed and you don't have to pay for gas until you actually do the first on-chain transaction. Um, and, that, and like you were saying, like this means you can, you can receive um, stuff, but like you can, you can in theory also create a signature and, and use that to either to sign in or even to kind of like um, create some intent that, that someone else then relays. And, and pays gas for you. So you, yeah, so we kind of need this, um, or we need apps to support this. It's really cool. One thing that I, I actually am curious, I wonder if you know, if I do a counterfactual deploy of an AA wallet, so I, I compute its create two address, even though nothing has been deployed on chain for, let's say, a, a passkey generated in a PWA. Let's, let's go with the trendy topic. Mm-hmm. If I want to add an additional module or a signer or somehow change the configuration, but the contract isn't yet deployed, is that something that I can do off-chain and then just propagate both at the same time in a bundle? Or how would you... I, maybe you only want to interact with the counterfactual address as long as no state changes have been made to the permissions on the contract? Yeah. Um, so if you actually want to change the states, kind of, then you would actually have to kind of put it on-chain, right? You could. What you can do is you can either yourself or you can trust someone else to hold kind of transactions for you um, or user operations. So for example, you might say like, actually, I create this user operation to change whatever now, but someone else is going to hold on to it and then they're going to relay it at some other point. But this obviously means kind of you have to trust that that entity to, to, to not or to not lose it, essentially. So yeah, that, that's kind of an issue. We're, we've started thinking about that a bit more and seeing what other things are possible there. Um, but yeah, I haven't dove into that too deeply. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty niche at this point, but it does seem like, you know, you can imagine someone creating an account on one device, they don't need to deploy the contract yet, so it's still counterfactual, and then they go and add a, another uh, device maybe on a different platform, and because of some uh, challenges like syncing passkeys or, uh, you know, passwords, etc., it's maybe better to just make like a new signer on the other device and add it to the uh, 4337, but mm, someone's going to have to start paying gas or or at least hanging <laughs> on to those user ops somewhere somewhere safe. 
That's right. Yeah. 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 I think we, we, I think some other teams are definitely thinking about this as well, but I think there might be some, some pretty cool solutions we have to this where you can at least reduce the trust assumptions and and make this even smoother for people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It does remind me, we kind of touched on it a little earlier, but this like multi-chain permissions, you know, I I add a signer Mm -hmm. or I rotate the keys because something got compromised or I lost a device. I guess we're just waiting on uh, Vitalik's vision to be a manifest or something (laughs) like that. Yeah, yeah. Cross chain is a is a huge um, it's a huge thing for for smart contract accounts. So on the one hand, you obviously I think you touched on this a bit earlier. You have some chains where you can't actually get the same address. That's obviously an issue. And then you also have kind of dependency on you might you know like you might want to install a module on every chain, but actually you don't want to pay gas on every chain. Like that's kind of like stupid. Um, or you might want to read from a contract like Keystore or like the registry. Um, even if that contract only exists on one chain. And there are, there are some, I mean, obviously it seems like Vitalik is exploring this. I know that Optimism, um, they sponsored or, or gave a grant, I think, to a team to implement the, I think it's a, I think it's called static call into L1, where basically you can, well, static call into L1 and, and read data on Optimism, data that's stored on, on, on Ethereum. So it's okay I as think long it's as you're gonna... willing to store your your permissions on the most expensive chain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely an issue. And you would also, well, first of all, you would also need like other L2s to support this as well. Otherwise, you can just do it on Optimism. Right. It seems like a real political problem to put this in, on any of the less expensive L2s. Like, which one? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think the other problem is also it's it's just a lot harder to read cross L2s as opposed to read from L1, from an L2. Yeah. Research to be done. More more grants to be given. No <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and this doesn't impact like account attraction only, right? Like you 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 already had teams like I think Herodotus, um, they're called who are doing storage proofs. Yes. That are used for other applications as well. I know Worldcoin actually. I think they were working on a solution where they were bridging storage proofs, or I don't know if it was bridging per se, but like you know moving storage proofs from I think Polygon to Ethereum or something like that, and they moved. Um, something like that. <laughs> hmm. All right. Well, we've reached the end of my list of questions, but I feel like there's tons more subjects that you're uh, interested in and are worth talking about. Is there anything that jumps to mind that we didn't cover that uh, people should know about Rhinestone or about this modular space related to AA wallets? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think we talked about quite a lot of stuff, to be honest. <laughs> I think, I guess, like one thing we could talk about briefly that we haven't talked about is that, so w- one thing that is kind of necessary when you have these like on-chain modules is you also need a way for front ends to be able to format or create call data or signatures the right way so that you can actually use those modules. And that's something I think that's generally like less talked about and, and also just like less thought about. Um, because say like you have a kind of like you were saying before, you have like two like wallet interfaces, like both being front ends. One on, on one of them you activate a validator. Let's say that's a Pascal's validator, right? And then you move to the other interface. And that other interface also needs to, well, first of all, you need to add a, a different Pascal probably to, to the module. But then it also needs to know how to actually encode the signature that's created by that Pascal the right way and then pass that into the user operation. So that, that also, there's also some interesting problems there. Hmm. So this is the, can you just repeat exactly what the, the, Constructing which part is is the problem? Where's the need for standardization exactly, or at least for communication between these modules? Yeah, so constructing kind of whatever data um, a, a module needs. Um, so that might be it. Might it might be the signature, 
that a validation, uh, validation module, for example, kind of parses and verifies, or it might be the call data that, for example, a hook or an executor module kind of use. And, and the front end just needs to know how, based on you know, whatever module is going to be called or going to be used, it needs to kind of know how to, how to format that, that data. Hmm. And uh, is, is anyone working on that right now? So we're exploring that. It's not the kind of highest priority right now. As far as I know, there's no one else kind of in the open talking about it. Um, I know, um, I think Jaden from Soul Wallet, he put some thought, thoughts out there at some point to even maybe create a domain-specific language for doing this, kind of for front-ends. Hmm. Um, but I'm not sure to what extent kind of Soul Wallet is exploring this. But it's something that we think about, like I said, like to some extent. Um, and, and, and one of the kind of just solutions we see is, is you kind of have this library, essentially, right, the, of like on-chain modules. It's kind of not a library in the strict sense, but there's just like different on-chain modules that exist. And then you also have corresponding to those on-chain modules, you kind of have a library or, or, or whatever of, of kind of front-end modules. And then kind of the, an interface could say, oh, like this is now going to use validation module A. Let me just kind of fetch the, um, either just the functionality or even kind of like a widget or an interface that can be embedded in the front-end to actually format the data the right way to be sent to validation module A. Do you think that's something that might live on-chain, like uh, in parallel to the registry related to security? Yeah, well, it's kind of, it's off-chain. It's, it's mostly off-chain for, for front-ends to do. It could live on something like IPFS um, or Arweave, um, where like, I guess more and more people are, are starting to host front-ends there. To have like more, I guess like more secure data availability, secure in the sense of less trust assumptions. But yeah, so you might imagine um, so, so a, a module might be registered on chain and uh, have a pointer to the uh, content address on IPFS or something where a front end could go fetch uh, the the format of call data it needs to pass. Yeah, for example, yeah, I think that could be that could be a, a feasible architecture. Hmm, very interesting. All right, Conrad, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming in, telling us all about. Rhinestone, this is uh, really exciting. If people want to find out more, if they want to start building modules, where should they go? Where should they find you? Yeah, um, so on, on Twitter, we're RhinestoneWTF. Our website is currently very underdeveloped. Um, that was It was built during ETH Denver, actually, um, in a few hours by myself. And <laughs> we haven't had the time to update it, although we will soon. But I think for developers, the, the best place would be to go to our docs, which are docs.rhinestone.wtf. Um, and kind of find out all about the registry, the module kit, and kind of how to get started in, in the modular ecosystem. Yeah, very exciting. And, and make sure to interact on Twitter because I think your Twitter account is like shadow banned or something. I can never get you to come up <laughs> with it in the search results. <laughs> yeah, it might be the name. Maybe maybe something. Elon doesn't like the WTF. WTF somehow, <laughs> Elon doesn't like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> oh, well. We're in, we're in, we're in under, underfollowed accounts. <laughs> Shad, uh, what is it? Shadowy uh, super coders. So I'm sure the right people That's will right. find you. Uh, all right, Conrad, <laughs> right. thanks so much for coming and sharing all this information. This is, uh, this is great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to be on the podcast. I think I already told you, but I'm, I'm a big fan. I've been listening to most of the episodes, I would say, actually. Oh, wow. Thanks so much. That's great to hear. Uh, well, I'd love to have you back and I'd love to have Kurt on uh, in the future as well to talk uh, some of the, the product thinking around this as well in the future when maybe you have something else to announce or... Uh, or some news about the 6900 or the uh, the EF grant. It'd be great to have you back. For sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, we'll definitely think about it. Awesome. All right. Have a great nice. rest of the day. Thanks, everybody, for coming cool. to listen. Uh, see you a little bit later on today, uh, having a, a second interview at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern today. So see you in a few hours. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Conrad. Great. Thank you. Bye. 
thanks for listening to this episode of Web3 Galaxy Brain. To keep up with everything Web3, follow me on Twitter at Nicholas with four leading ends. You can find links to the topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. Podcast feed links are available at web3galaxybrain.com. Web3 Galaxy Brain airs live most Friday afternoons at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2200 UTC on Twitter Spaces. I look forward to seeing you there.